0: What do we expect evil to look like? Really, if you think about something like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, how do you actually expect these characters to appear? Do we expect one to have a face of twisted features with a grotesque lack of symmetry? Something like Quasimodo from The Hunchback of Notre Dame with a top hat? Whenever we think of evil and good, we tend to have this idea that is a lot like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. We intend to vision the good doctor as calm, collected, someone who wears a careful face of resolution, while his alternative self, that evil side, is hideous, it's something like a brute with rudely contorted features. We think of one side looking tame as if it had never broken a bone, and the other looking primitive as if every bone had been broken and healed without ever being set back right. And that is indeed how Hollywood often portrays the situation. But if we actually understand how good and evil really work, there's something very sinister about how evil disguises itself. In fact, if we actually look at the actual novel, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, it teaches us something far more elusive about the face of evil. And today in our message I want us to open our minds so that we can see clearly. You know, the world wants us to to shut down our minds so that other things will think for us, so that we just go along with whatever is told to us. But God comes to us. He wants us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And all throughout Old and New Testament, God calls people. He says, get up, go out and see what I have in store for you. I'm not here just to macromanage you, but I'm here to transform your mind so that you are free to stand, to love me, to love your neighbor. But you're also free to fall. You are sufficient In my image, I will give you that quickening power of the Holy Spirit so that you can live righteously, but you must get up and go out and see. Today, we're going to be looking at how we navigate the world and really understand what it means for there to be evil, to be repulsed, and a heaven to be admired, because we really need to be able to see clearly. In our world right now, there's a big problem where we don't see truth clearly. And one of the reasons this has happened is because people don't really understand what is evil and they don't really understand what is good. And we've got our brains to a point where we're so muddied in the way we think that everything looks the same. We can't tell if something is good or evil. We don't really understand how to tell if something is true or understand what it means for something to be true. So I want us to go now to Robert Louis Stevenson. And I want him to bring us to a really interesting image with his description of Mr. Hyde. Now, if you haven't read Robert Louis Stevenson's novel, it's kind of a young adult novel and it really looks at, at these two different sides of good and evil. And it tries to split out the sin nature from the you know, made in the image of God nature. And the book is really set up like that. It opens up discussing Cain's heresy, this whole idea of what if we could be fully good and just completely remove our our sinful self. And when it comes to describing Mr. Hyde, let me read to you an excerpt from this book. Robert Louis Stevenson, he describes Mr. Hyde as follows. There's something wrong about the way he looks, something that is displeasing, something downright detestable. I by no means saw a man I so disliked, and yet scarcely realized why. He must be deformed somewhere, for he gives a robust feeling of deformity, yet I cannot specify the factor. He's an extraordinarily searching man, but I truly cannot name anything out of place. You see, in the novel Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Mr. Hyde's features, they're not all broken and misshapen as Hollywood tends to portray this. In fact, he appears to be a much younger man than Dr. Jekyll. Since he never got to be a man and live out life and age, he's just kind of like a ordinary young man. Yet, at the same time, even though his appearance may look like a healthy and ordinary young man, there's some sort of massive discomfort that he generates. And it's hard to pin down. It's something which is displeasing, but one cannot say why. Mr. Hyde gives the impression of being totally deformed, but yet there is no visible deformity. There's nothing out of place, nothing strange that can be specified, yet his deformity is real and his malady is nothing less than a nature that is perfectly sinful. So thank you for joining me. I'm Pastor Jay Dylan Proctor, and today we're going to be talking about seeing past evil because the better we can see past evil, the more clearly we can see what is good, true and beautiful. We must understand that not all voices are equally truthful. Not all virtues that the world throws at us are actually virtues. Not all things are innocent. There are a lot of things which are incompatible. There are things which are to be rejected and things which are to be admired and accepted. And we have to understand how to walk on this earth with the biblical worldview. So let's open up in prayer and we'll get into our message. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to come together, Lord, even over the internet airwaves. I pray that you open up our hearts and minds to receive your wisdom, strength, and encouragement. In all that we do, let us always be a righteous men and women who raise up strong courage and nobility in our hearts as we continue on in this life. Lord, bless us and put people in our pathway that we might minister to them. We ask all of this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Alright, so there's a lot we can learn from dr jekyll and mr hyde that fictional illustration evil does not always give us the gift of obvious deformity a lot of times our instincts know something is off but we can't always lay a finger on exactly where it is sometimes things look quite gross and they they have that appearance of deformity but yet they may not be as evil as we might initially suspect oftentimes discerning what is actually evil is very difficult And we should be grateful whenever it is obvious and whenever it is clear. Whenever it's easy to spot the demonic truth of a twisted man who's tormented in a cemetery, that should be something we're grateful for. But whenever the demons are talking about scripture and they're attending synagogue on the Sabbath, that's a time where things are a little bit more difficult. And really the purpose of today's message is, I want us to wrap our minds around the fact that evil is very, very tricky. Satan is not called the father of lies without warrant. There's a reason behind that. And in our world, this is not something which is just reserved to your personal life if you believe it. It is something out there in the world, regardless of whether you acknowledge it or not. We have to be able to see clearly. And we have to teach our children, our neighbors, our friends, our families. We have to teach them how to clearly see good and clearly see evil. And... Today, we'll be looking at Mark chapter 5. And in the first five chapters of Mark's account of the gospel, we find that Jesus has had a multitude of demonic encounters. Many of them were actually in the synagogues, like in our churches on Sunday. There were a lot of people who were moving around society like ordinary people. They were going to shop. They were going to work. They were going to do all the things that an ordinary person does, but yet they were possessed by demons. They were even going to church on Sunday or Sabbath in the synagogue. And here in Mark chapter 5, Jesus meets something which is a little different. He meets one in the cemetery, and something strange happens. The demoniac comes running towards Jesus, and upon meeting Jesus, he bows before the Christ. And we read this story with the luxury of time, and we get a brief account of this encounter. Mark's gospel is kind of action-packed. It moves very quickly. And since we have some understanding of who Jesus is from kind of growing up with the things we we have in 2,000 years of church history unfolding, we, we tend to think on the front end that, yes, it's obvious that this is a demon and Jesus casts it out and he goes on. But that's not necessarily the case. Evil is very, very deceptive. In fact, a lot of people were going to church. A lot of people were going to synagogue and they had demonic possessed people living next to them and they had no idea about it. Or in some cases, they didn't care. So today, we're going to read through a little bit of of Mark chapter 5, and I want us to imagine this situation as if it happened. Imagine if we saw a man possessed by demons speak, but there wasn't anybody there who had the power to cast out the evil, or even force the evil to reveal its name. If all we saw was a man bowing down and asking for relief, we might be fooled. And that really is the image that we see here. There is a man that comes running up to Jesus. He bows down. He correctly looks at Jesus and says, you are the son of God. And then he says, do not torment us. Have, have mercy on me. That sounds so innocent. It sounds like that is a victim. But those words, that mind which had that cry for relief, it wasn't from even the man possessed by this. It was from the demons themselves. It was from hell. It would be easy to be fooled if we did not have someone like Jesus to show us the truth. So let's go now to Mark chapter 5. We'll kind of break up this this chapter, and we're going to read all of the the chapter because I want the gospel to speak for itself, but I want us to really jump into the story. So in Mark 5, it says, So they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately a man out of the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. Now he had lived among the tombs, and no one could restrain him anymore, even with a chain. He had been often restrained with shackles and chains, but the chains he would wrench apart, and the shackles he broke down into pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always seen howling and bruising himself with stones. All right, let's pause just for a second at these first five verses because it's showing us the first image. As we look at the demoniac in this text, we're going to see two very clear images. The first is we've got a man who no one can restrain. He's got chains wrapped around his, his body in places. He's broken them down. He's broken free and just has the remnants of the shackles. His clothes, what is left of them, are in ruins as well. This man looks like a monster. In fact, the description we get here could be applied to basically your standard werewolf movie. I mean, this is your classic monster imagery. But, there's something more going on here. Because we might look at this and obviously think that is evil. But what we're actually seeing when we see the man that's in the chains howling and beating himself, what you're seeing there is actually the victim body of this man that is held captive by demons that's what the victim actually looks like in the chains bruised up ripped clothes if there's any clothes at all that's what the victim of evil looks like we oftentimes think in our minds that's what the monster looks like but no that's actually what the victim looks like the victim of evil looks like that. The weeping, the gnashing of teeth, the spinning around of the head that emits vomit. That's what hell wants its victims to look like. That's what it wants its prey to be like. That's what it wants you to look like. Now let's pick up in verse 6 and we're going to see in a very contrasting image. And it says, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and bowed down before him. And he shouted at the top of his voice. He said, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God. Do not torment me. Now, what we saw in those two verses, there is a completely different image, isn't it? This looks quite innocent. If we see someone coming to bow at Jesus, we see someone correctly saying, Jesus, you are the son of the most high God. I adjure you. Do not torment me. We would think that. Is the man asking for help? That's the victim there. But no. In verses 6 and 7 of this chapter, that is actually the monster speaking. This is the demonic horde. It's not the man who is crying out, but the demons who control his body. It's the demons who see clearly that Jesus is the Son of God, and they're the ones who are invoking the name of God. And we know this is true for how jesus responds jesus responds in verse 8 for jesus had said to him come out of the man you unclean spirit and then jesus asked him what is your name my name is a legion for we are many and he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country now there was on the hillside a great herd of swine that was feeding and the unclean spirits begged jesus They said, send us into the swine, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits, they came out and they entered the swine. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea where they drowned. So what we have saw here is two very different images. And they tried to trick your brain. If we watch this in real time, we would think the chained up body over there With the bruises, the howling, that's got to be the monster. And we would think the voice which cries out and says, Oh, son of God, do not torment me. Give me mercy. We would think that voice is probably the innocent victim one. But those things are actually backwards. The body, which again is now possessed by demons, the man has no control over his muscles. No control over anything. He's trapped in a prison that is his own body. When he comes and bows before Jesus, it is not his will that is bowing him down. It is the demons inside him. Imagine being this man. You're that close. You're that close to the master of all creation. And yet this fiendish thing which has infected you, you know the truth of it. It is using your tongue so that that terrible monster inside you, those demonic hordes, they are asking for mercy and you are completely without the power to do anything. Because the demons don't want to be tormented by Jesus. And you know, insert your State Farm commercial, they know a thing or two about torment because they've seen a thing or two about torment. They speak the language of torment. They want Jesus to leave so that they can continue possessing this man. If Jesus sided with the voice coming out of this body, he would have turned around and walked away and left that man imprisoned by the demons. But Jesus does not respond with words that say, okay, I'm not going to torment you. Instead, in verse 8, he responded with, come out, you unclean spirit. And then he makes them say their name. He does a little bit of a roll call here. Let's pick up in verse 14, and we'll run to the end of this chapter, it says. The swineherds they ran off, and they told it in the city and in the country. Then people came to see what was happening. They came to Jesus and saw the demoniac sitting there, clothed and now in his right mind, the very man who had the legion. And they were afraid. Those who had seen what had happened to the demoniac and to the swine, they reported it. And they began to beg Jesus to leave their neighborhood. For a brief respite, let me reread verse 17. These people saw Jesus cast out a demon, give somebody his right mind back, give him freedom. And they begged Jesus to leave their neighborhood. A lot of times people don't like seeing righteousness. It's not a given that people will want what is good. Verse 18, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed by demons begged that he might be with him. But Jesus refused and said to him, Go home to your friends. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and what mercy he has shown you. Again, Jesus did show mercy. It wasn't to the demons, it was to the man possessed by them. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. Now, when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was by the sea. And one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came. And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and began to speak to him repeatedly, begging, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, and she will be made well and live. And so Jesus went with him. Now, there were a large crowd of people that followed Jesus, and they pressed in on him. And in that, there was a woman who had been suffering from her hemorrhages for twelve years. She had endured much under many physicians, and she had spent all that she had, and yet she was no better. Rather, she continued to grow worse. And she had heard about Jesus, and she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. For she said, If I can touch but the hem of his garments, I will be made well. And immediately her hemorrhage stopped. And she felt her body, that she was healed of her disease. And immediately aware that power had gone forth from him, Jesus turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? And the disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you. How can you say who touched me? And Jesus looked around to see who had done it. And the woman, knowing what had happened to her, she came forth in fear and trembling and fell down before Jesus and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed in your disease. And while he was still speaking, some people came from the leader's house to say, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the leader of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. He allowed no one to follow him except for Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the house of the leader of the synagogue, he saw a commotion. People were weeping and wailing loudly. When he entered the house, he said to them, Why do you make a commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Then he put them all outside. He took the child's father, he took the child's mother, those who were there with him, and they went inside where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk about. And she was about 12 years of age. Now at this miracle, they were overcome with amazement. And he strictly ordered them that no one should know this and they should give her something to eat. So here, as we looked at, the gospel according to St. Mark chapter 5, we've seen some amazing healings. We've seen people respond very poorly to healings, and we've seen some people have their eyes and ears opened up to it. We have a problem in our modern day and age of people's ability to receive truth. And I actually don't think it's an issue in the, the realm of understanding. Or I should say it's not a realm of understanding in the first and foremost sense. It's an issue in our ability to see and receive truth which then changes how we understand the world. And what we find here is the first half of this chapter shows us a very wicked scam where evil, it comes to Jesus as if it is the most natural thing. And in the second half, we see Jesus bring about two healings for people that have faith in him. In the first half, we see a fake faith in Jesus, which is produced by the demons, and we're going to talk about that. And then we see, in the second half, real faith in Jesus. Now, we can look at our own lives and really put things into a bit of a triangle. There are things we know in our minds to be true. There are things we feel in our heart that we may want to be true, or maybe we like, and we, we really feel them in our heart. And then there are the things that we actually do in our life. And this triangle, feeling, knowing, and doing, is very important as we understate how we operate in the world. If we we understand things, but we don't believe them in our heart, usually the heart wins and we don't actually do them. Sometimes we understand things and we don't really know how to apply them in the world, so we never actually go out and do them. What's fascinating about the Gospel of Mark is it shows us that if we come to Jesus saying, I believe, help my unbelief, that will suffice. What we find here with these few people, Jairus and the woman who has the the blood hemorrhages, they don't fully understand what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah because they, they just really can't at this point. But yet in their hearts, they trust him. They're moved to act on something they may not fully understand. And in that, they end up having a better understanding than just about anyone else around. For the man who is there, imprisoned by these demons, he in his heart, we don't know exactly what he is feeling. We know he's feeling tormented, but there in his mind, he knows the truth that these demonic hordes have possession of him. And he's completely unable to do anything. But yet God has mercy in all of these situations. And what we can learn from this is we need to be people who, regardless of how much we think we understand or how much we think that we feel, we are consistent to do the good work of the gospel and allow God to come and transform our minds so that we can be sound mind like the demoniac, or we can be like Jairus or this woman who is healed, who we come to a better understanding. We come to a better love after we have gone and walked with Jesus. So, let's talk a little bit about how evil operates in the first half of this chapter. Because it comes before Jesus as if it is the most natural thing. And we can go to Revelation 13 and find something very similar. In Revelation 13, 1, the apostle John witnessed the beast rising out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on its horns were ten diadems, and on its heads were blasphemous names. Now, this beast, it appears on the seashore with a really gross description. You know, it's a hard description to wrap our minds around because it's really not describable. John is really doing the best he can to give some sort of description to something which can't be described. But this beast, it appears on the seashore as if it's an ordinary thing, even though it doesn't look ordinary at all. But it appears as if it is. It appears as if there's nothing suspicious about its emergence from the eternal deep. And despite its indescribable appearance, the beast does not come out of the sea in a strong declaration of its evil and its purpose. Rather, it comes out of the sea as if it is the most natural thing, as if people should have expected it all along. And what I mean when I say it doesn't come declaring its purpose, it's not like the American Revolution where we send a declaration of independence to King George III. The beast doesn't come out with a big pamphlet and a handout and says, this is why I'm here. Send this message to God. I'm rebelling against him. I'm evil, but I want you to go along with my evil. It doesn't do any of that. It's not something like the Protestant Reformation where Martin Luther nails 95 theses to the door of the church. The beast just shows up and it doesn't bother to explain itself. But it expects people to worship it. And there's something we can learn about psychology here. Because our reaction to events, to pieces of information, is largely dictated by how we see others react. And if the beast does not react to itself as if it's evil, and there's no one around that says, ah, yes, that is evil, a lot of people will say, you know, it looks kind of gross, but evidently it's not. Evidently it is good. We watch how other people react, we watch how people present themselves, and we think that dictates what's going on deep within more so than the truth of what's actually going on. And because the beast does not bother with explaining itself and there's no one there to kind of react as if it's evil, people start worshipping it. The beast expects people to worship it, and they do, they do not fail. Moreover, in Revelation 13, 8, it says all of the inhabitants of the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb that was slaughtered. And those terrible demons in Mark 5, Legion, they come to Jesus as if it's the most natural thing. They don't explain themselves. They act as if their prostration is noble. And just to explain how in-noble they are, I want us to think for a moment. If you in your home, someone came over to you came over to your house, and they ignored you when they came there, but they broke into your house, they kicked in your front door, they come in, they steal your refrigerator, they steal your television, they steal your favorite items, and maybe even your unfavorite ones too. They steal everything in your house. They load it up in a big old box van outside. And then they come back up to the door and they say, hi, how are you doing today? Aren't I your best friend? Let's go have a a good day together. If somebody did that and never acknowledged that they just broke into your house and stole all your stuff, you wouldn't take that seriously. That's, that's a ridiculous scene. You know, our brains can't even wrap around how somebody could do something so brazenly criminal as stealing all our stuff before our eyes while ignoring us and then taking it outside, then coming back and acting like everything's normal. But that's exactly what these demons did. In front of Jesus's eyes, they took possession of this man, moved his body like a contorted puppet over to Jesus bowed him down and then started to beg for mercy they don't acknowledge that yeah we stole this person's body jesus it's like somebody who steals a car and drives up to the police station with a big sign outside their car that says this car is stolen and they go up to the police and like hey you want to go for a ride with us in our sweet new you know convertible The demons are not sincere because they do not give any recognition of the unspeakable evil that they have enforced upon their captive child of God. The demonic horde comes to Jesus, and it forces their slave's body to bow before the Christ. Specifically, the word that is used here is proskineson, which refers to some sort of reverent act of bowing down before someone in recognition of their honor. But let us not be deceived. The demons are not paying honest tribute to Jesus' honor as the Son of God. This is not honest. Oh yeah, they know who he is. And they can bow before him without any recognition of the the unfathomable evil they are conducting right before his eyes. They think they can do this. They know that he is the Lord of all creation. He sees and knows everything. And yet they think they can pull this scam right in front of him. They think they can break into your house, steal stuff from you, ignore you, and then turn around and pretend to be on good terms with you? You see, it is not any demon's body that bows, but the captive man's who is piloted around like a fairy. We don't see any demonic bodies here. We don't even really know what the demons look like. They don't exist in the material world like we do. They're uninvited, they're uncreated, they're unborn. They're not going to exist like like people would They're not going to exist in some form that we can really wrap our our mind around clearly. Now, we can understand their evil clearly, and we can be well and clearly fortified against them. But it's not their body that bows down. We don't see a bunch of demons line up in, you know, some sort of choreographed bow or something like that. No. What we see is the captive man's body. It is the demon's will, but the man's body. They cannot bow before Jesus without jerking the chains and cables which animate their puppet. Their act of bowing is nothing more than an act of fiendish mockery because it's not even their body they use. They use someone else's to pull off this fake virtue. And if they're not willing to acknowledge their crime, then they are not serious about bowing down, much less real worship. If they're not going to come and at least apologize for stealing a body to come to jesus then they are not serious about paying honor to jesus and when we look more closely at what this wicked legion does this terrible collection of demons from hell they come with an attitude before jesus as if they might somehow paint him as the tormentor when you go back and you actually look at their language they say lord have mercy on us You know, hell is very skilled at accusing others of what they are guilty of. In fact, we quite often find that people are regularly guilty of the sins that they accuse others of. It's easy to project the sins that one understands. And the demons, they understand a thing or two about torment. And we learn from this that we must be very careful not to be fooled by evil. Going back to that illustration from Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Dr. Jekyll doesn't always just look like the calm, collected professor, and Mr. Hyde doesn't always look like Quasimodo in a top hat. Sometimes those roles are reversed. Sometimes the man that's over there in chains, howling, bruising himself, is the victim you're seeing. And sometimes those cries for mercy, those cries for pity and charity, those are actually the ones coming from hell. What we see here is a diabolical misrepresentation that bears false witness to the truth that they are evil. The demons here, they are not victims who need pity, though they come pretending to be that. They come bowing before Jesus, they call out the truth and correctly name him the Son of God, and they even make an appeal that makes them sound like they are the victims who need pity. But they're not. They're slaving pirates who slave around the earth with one of God's children as their unwilling ship. And we've got to realize that evil is both present and real. The more we think it is absent, the better it is situated to prey on us. We have to realize that even the devil can quote scripture and the demons will pretend to bow before the king of kings. Now, Jesus' response to this gives no credence to the insincere appeal. He commands them to be cast out, And there is no negotiation. Do not let us think that Jesus agrees to give them what they want. Because what they want is Jesus to go away and leave them alone so they can continue torturing this man. And Jesus instead, he ignores that and he casts them out. And at the word of Jesus, they must let the man free. Now, this is how the gospel handles evil. It casts it out. It doesn't make a compromise with it. It doesn't invite it to the table and say, yeah, you know, demons, you've got some points here. You've got a few points here. And so maybe we do need to compromise. No, it doesn't happen like that. When Jesus sends the demons into the swine and into the waters, the scripture does not specify that only the the swine are those who perish. Jesus destroys them. They are destroyed. Jesus was neither fooled nor distracted by the fake posturing of the demonic legion. And from this fact, we learn something about holiness. Those who live holy lives, we should not be easily fooled by deceptive morality. Throughout the gospel, Jesus is teaching us we should not see the problems of the world the same way the world does. We should not be confused about what is a lie, what is a scam, and what is truthful. Now, there are some really good scams out there. But spiritual discernment is a real thing. The power of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, it's a real thing. Those tongues of fire, they came to rest on you so that you can actually see clearly. But oftentimes we spend our minds listening to the different perspectives of the world and we're so muddled in our brain that we can't tell what is true. We can only after the fact say, yeah, you know, that that was a scam last year, but I didn't really think so at the time. Oh, well. No, we in the church should be calling out scams of the world in real time as they're happening on the front end. We have the power of the Holy Spirit. The gospel gives us eyes and ears to see clearly we should not be in lockstep with the world. And we must teach our children and our neighbors how to think clearly. And the only way to truly think freely is to be transformed by that perfect love of Christ. And let me give you a few examples of this as we wrap up this message. I've gone a little bit longer than I wanted to, but I hope everyone has stayed with me on this. When we look throughout the Gospel of, of St. Mark, and we'll look a few other places that we um, and some other Gospels in, into the book of Acts, I want us to look going back to the Gospel according to St. Mark chapter 1. In that chapter, in verses 16 through 20, there are some fishermen. Now the world generally looks and says oh, there's some fishermen over there, but that's not what Jesus sees. Jesus sees two brothers named James and John, and they need the call of heaven. Later in Mark chapter 1, verses 40 through 45, the world saw a leper. But Jesus doesn't see a leper. Jesus saw somebody that he wanted to make clean. Jesus wanted it. There, when you get in chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, the world sees tax collectors and sinners. And they want to talk on the terms of tax collectors and sinners. They say, Jesus, why are you eating with tax collectors? Why are you eating with sinners? But Jesus doesn't see the world that way. What he sees is a man called Matthew who needs the love of God. Time and time again, we can go to the gospel according to St. John. The world comes to Jesus, even Jesus' own disciples, and they say, Rabbi, teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You see that in John 9, 2. But Jesus will answer, it was neither this man nor his parents that sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. And that's John 9, 3. Jesus does not see things the world wants him to. He sees things that are true. Jesus doesn't get hung up in the weeds and he's not baited into anything less than truth. By the time we arrive at our text here in Mark chapter 5, 1 through 20, Jesus sees a man who is imprisoned by demons. The world wants us to see a, a man running up to Jesus, bowing down, having an appeal for mercy coming out of his mouth. But Jesus was not fooled by what appeared to be a reverent victim. Instead, he saw the truth. A diabolical scam pretending to be something it wasn't so that Jesus would leave and let the demons do what they wanted. Now, all Christians are instructed by the gospel to have a new set of eyes which with we can navigate life. And we see that when the Holy Spirit comes, there on the day of Pentecost, it gave us a gift of sanctification. And that should change how we see the world. In fact, if we really are sanctified, it will. We won't use the language of the world. We won't be fooled by the scams of the world. And we won't be in lockstep with the world if we are really sanctified. God is not fooled by evil. And there's no way God's holy people are going to be fooled by evil if they're really transformed and conformed to God. And in Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, there's a man who is expecting alms at the temple. For some reason or another, he's disabled. He has some sort of of illness which has caused his feet and his ankles to be weak and he can't walk. And the world, including the spiritual people, they think this is sorted out by giving the man alms, pity, and material charity, you know, money. Peter and John, they see this man, but they're not thinking on the terms of finance and pity. Instead, they say, you know, that guy needs to be healed. So... They don't give him silver and gold. They give him the name of Jesus and healing. They see the world on different terms because they are moved by the Holy Spirit, they are living out the gospel, and they love the liberty of Christ. And with the gospel comes this freedom. I want us to go now to 1 Peter 4, verses 1 through 4 where the Apostle Peter, he points out how clearly we should be thinking differently from the world. And in 1 Peter 4, 1-4, he says, Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with that same intention. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has finished with sin. And so as for you, live the rest of your earthly life no longer by human desires, but by the will of God. You have already spent enough time doing what the Gentiles like to do, living in licentiousness, passions, drunkenness, revels, carousing and lawless idolatry. And the world, they are surprised at you that you will not run with them in their same excesses of debauchery and so they slander you. And what Peter is telling us is Christ came, he lived, he died, he resurrected. You have the power of Christ living with you. You live and die with Christ. Don't go along with the desires of the world. Don't talk like the world. Don't get into the same topics as the world. Preach the gospel. The world is going to be mad at you because you don't run with them in their same excesses of insanity, of debauchery, of gluttonous untruth. And so they slander you. And that's okay. In Ephesians 6, 17, the church is given the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And the Holy Spirit came to us that we would be gifted with that great weapon of sanctification and the church should not be in lockstep with the world being fooled and baited into untruthful methods of thinking. So do not be fooled by evil that puts on a show, but instead weigh out fruits and live freely with Christ. Evil is very, very tricky. And we have to understand in our brains, sometimes what we are being told is evil is actually what is not. And the ones who are crying that they are victims, they want relief, they're here to do something virtuous, something good, those are the ones who are actually pulling the scam. We have to be very clever in how we see the world. All right. So thank you for joining me. Let's close by saying the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory for it. Amen. And thank you for joining me. Again, I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor. God love you and have a blessed day.